There is a future beyond shell. It is necessary, overdue, and inevitable. In its place, we are building a clean, fair, and affordable energy democracy. Get ready. Oil and gas major shell has contributed significantly to the climate crisis. It has long impeded a just transition away from fossil fuels. But what are the pathways to a future beyond shell? If we are serious about putting a stop to the polluting colonial capitalist company, we need to take a good look at the options. Bankrupting, carbon pricing, suing, nationalizing. What can we achieve with these strategies? Welcome to the Future Beyond Shell podcast, in which we explore potential pathways to responsibly dismantle Shell as we know it. We are your hosts, Archina Ramanujan and Marisol Reindl. Oil and war are often tightly bound together, both in terms of war's causes and the outcomes. Indeed, Russia's invasion of Ukraine has caused massive shifts in the oil and gas industry. Soon after the start of the war in February 2022, BP, ExxonMobil, Shell and Equinor announced their exit from Russia, an unusual response to a conflict situation for the industry. Fossil fuel companies have often claimed inherent neutrality due to their inability to choose the location and owner of oil and gas reserves. Shell in particular announced it will drop its joint ventures with Russian gas giant Gazprom. This includes a 27.5% stake in the Sakhalin 2 liquefied natural gas facility, a 50% stake in the Salium petroleum development of oil in Western Siberia, and a 50% stake in a joint venture for oil and gas exploration on the Gideon Peninsula. Shell will also cut ties with the Nord Stream 2 natural gas pipeline projects. But how do we interpret these decisions? Is there a genuine commitment to sacrifice profits, both in solidarity with the people of Ukraine and to support a just energy transition? In May of this year, oil giant Shell reported a record first quarter profit of 9.1 billion US dollars, boosted by higher oil and gas prices, among other things. These numbers suggest that solidarity and transition are not Shell's primary concerns. This episode tackles two issues. First, what does Shell's and other fossil fuel companies' exit from Russia mean for Shell economically and for the future of its business? Second, can such an exit somehow contribute towards a just transition to renewable energy? Today we'll be speaking with Lauri van der Berg, co-manager of the Global Public Finance Campaign at Oil Change International. Previously, she worked on the court case holding Shell accountable to greenhouse gas emissions targets, and she knows the ins and outs of the industry's financial side. So thanks for coming on the podcast, Laurie. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So I thought maybe we can start quite broadly. And so before we dive into um, uh, Shell and the war in Ukraine, Could you tell us a little bit about how you see the relationship between oil and conflict most generally? Yeah, I'd say that the history of fossil fuels is one of conflict and of inequality and of colonialism. Shell's own history is also one of conflict and colonialism. And um, when we look at the war in Ukraine, it's, uh, it's 
not an exception like compared to some of the other fossil fuel wars that we've seen in the past. Um, this really is a fossil fuel war. There's no doubt about it um, because fossil fuels are the single biggest uh, source of income for uh, Putin. So it's really the fossil fuels that are financing this war and that are, um, yeah, fueling this the, the war chest of, of Putin. Um, so almost 45% um, of Russia's budget is made up uh, from fossil fuel revenues. And the Kremlin also holds a grip on Europe because it uh, accounts for 40% of uh, the EU's gas imports. Um, so the EU has also been um, fueling this war by continuing to import fossil fuels from Russia. And those payments have been used to, to fuel this war. Um, so yeah, stopping fossil fuels from Russia is really critical to uh, winning this war, to stopping this war, um, and uh, to also uh, stop um, uh, fossil fuel conflict elsewhere in the world. Uh, we need to reduce our reliance on fossil fuels overall. Thanks, Larry. I think that's pretty clear, you know, um, and I think we've seen some action recently also um, on behalf of the EU to uh, cut down on uh, buying oil, at least from Russia. But um, I kind of I'm curious about um, Shell, like Shell in particular uh, uh, today. And so I'm curious how you see this situation, the war in Ukraine, the invasion of Ukraine as affecting Shell's uh, business broadly. Like and and or maybe even the fossil fuel industry's business. How how does it impact them? Yeah. So the real reality is that uh, the fossil fuel industry is profiting from this war, and that um, counts for Shell just as much as for the other oil and gas majors. Um, so because of the war, uh, the energy prices have continued to increase. They were already on the rise after. The world started opening up a bit more um, after the kind of the worst of the pandemic was behind us. Um, so the prices were already on the rise, but these price increases have been exacerbated by the war in Ukraine. And uh, Shell and other oil and gas companies are profiting from these price rises. So um, in the first quarter of this year, Shell reported $9 billion in profits, which was three times as much um, as they made in the first quarter last year. Um, so while households are struggling to pay their energy bills and uh, some of them are even forced to kind of choose between electricity and food, um, Shell's CEO, uh, Ben von Burden, is like filling its pockets uh, thanks to these high oil and gas prices. Um, and we've done a piece of research as OCI, as Oil Change International, together with some of our partners that um, has shown that uh, the US and, and UK oil and gas companies are making tens of billions in extra uh, profits um, thanks to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Yeah, I think that's really interesting to hear because, I mean, at the beginning of uh, the war or the, the invasion of Russia, we heard the news, you know, Shell had to exit so many crucial projects that, that they had such a large stake in. So, yeah, could you maybe elaborate a little bit more on yeah, what impact the, the war has had so far on the business viability and how they were able to compensate some of the financial losses? 
Yeah, so um, Shell ha had significant operations in Russia and the invasion of the Crimea actually back in 2014 did not convince Shell to, to leave Russia. Quite the opposite, they actually continued to invest in uh, Russian oil and gas projects. And um, we also have a piece of research that shows that since the invasion of the Crimea, um, Shell actually uh, paid $8 billion dollars uh, to the Russian uh, government uh, through its um, uh, oil and gas activities in Russia. Um, so it has not moved away from Russia because of increased aggression against the Ukraine. Um, and it's only starting to do so now because the public opinion has shifted with the full scale invasion of, of the Ukraine. Um, so it has decided to divest from a number of Russian projects, including Sakhalin 2 and Nord Stream uh, 2, but rather than closing down those activities, Shell is actually looking to sell off these assets to other companies. Um, so that doesn't weaken the power of Putin or the power of the Kremlin, because they're just selling off these activities to Russian companies or to other countries. Um, and Ben van Burden has actually literally said this is a commercial process. This is not abandonment. We're not just shutting down these projects. We're just selling them to other industries. So, um, of course, they might incur some losses from selling these assets, but those losses are kind of far outweighed by the extra profits that they're making because of the high energy prices. Um, so, uh, yeah, if you look at it like in a net way, uh, um, uh, Shell Opal was really profiting from this war. And uh, that's just a kind of, um, how, how would you say this? Um, that's kind of symptomatic for the fossil fuel industry as a whole. They, ha they have in the past been profiting from crises. And this is uh, just another example of the industry profiting from crises. Mm -hmm. Could you also maybe name some examples where Shell is maybe investing in new gas fields to sort of compensate losses from yeah the pro the projects that are sort of that they are now selling off in Russia or that they are leaving? So yeah, you would hope that in response to a fossil fueled war, Shell would use its extra profits to invest in energy efficiency and to invest in renewable energy um, and to basically transform the business in one way or another. But that's not what we're seeing happening. Um, uh, Shell is using its extra profits to increase payouts, payouts to shareholders. It's using its extra profits to invest in new um, fossil fuels. So we've done We've done a piece of research that shows that uh, the biggest fossil fuel firms are planning to spend almost a trillion dollars in new um, oil and gas fields uh, through 2030. Um, so rather than uh, investing in energy efficiency or clean energy, they are planning to lock us further into fossil fuel dependency. And Shell often tries to portray itself as one of the more progressive oil and gas companies as one that is leading on uh, climate action, but it is no different from the other oil and gas industries. And it also continues to invest in oil and gas. And it now particularly sees opportunities to invest in 
liquefied natural gas, LNG. So that's gas that is turned into liquid so that it can be more easily transported around the globe. And um, we are now seeing a big push for more investments in LNG to offset Russian supply, um, which would be um, catastrophic, not just from a climate perspective, but also from an energy security perspective, because as we've seen, this reliance on, on fossil fuels also really exposes households to these volatile um, uh, and, and high fossil fuel prices um, that um, yeah do not really contribute to uh, a secure um, a source of energy. Mm. Yeah, I think you're mentioning some really, really important points. And um, yeah, I think it's very saddening to hear that indeed, uh, yeah, big corp oil corporations seem to just manage to adapt their business model that it doesn't necessarily like lead us closer to a just transition. Um, yeah, I'm curious to, to hear more if, if, yeah, is there more information or insights you can give us on how they're adapting their business model? Um, yeah, can you name a few more examples? Um, yeah, I'd say one example that shows how Shell is definitely trying to um, manage its its image its, and, and make sure that it's um, that it's yeah acts as if or it shows that it cares about uh, this war is um, the example of Shell actually buying cheap Russian oil. Um, so soon after the start of this full-scale invasion of, of the Ukraine, uh, Shell announced that it would it draw from Russian assets. But soon after that, um, it came out that Shell was continuing to buy cheap Russian oil. Um, and um, recently, the Ukraine government has even come out against Shell and has said that it's like using an accounting trick to continue to buy cheap Russian oil. So. Um, to the public, Shell has said that it would stop um, buying this oil from Russia, um, but apparently Shell only defi defines oil as Russian when um, the blend of the different sources of, of oil um, consists of um, uh, more than 50% of Russian oil. So this way it can continue to buy oil that has 49% Russian oil blended into it. Um, so since that this came out, Shell has, is supposed to have strengthened its criteria and further kind of reduced its um, buying of, of Russian oil. But yeah, I have yet to see more evidence on, on this. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm interested in one thing that you mentioned, Lauri, about um, Shell selling off its assets, uh, particularly in Russia, to... Um, to other to other oil and gas companies, and I'm wondering, you know, um, for example, recently there was the case of them shelling, selling um, their retail stations, so their so their petrol stations and their lubricants uh, business to Luke Oil in Russia, and I'm wondering, you know, how if they're selling it to a Russian company. Um, that would mean, in theory, that at least their shell is not exporting it to other other countries. And if there's, you know, if various places are banning Russian oil and gas, it would be more difficult for 
for Russia to make money off of this. Is that the right way to think about this or am I barking up the wrong tree? Um, yeah, I'm, I'd say that if they're selling their retail business to Lukoil, so the retail business is mostly focused on um, the power state or the, not the power stations, the pump uh, stations in the, the petrol stations across the, the country in uh, Russia. So that was even when it was in Shell's hands, um, mostly for domestic consumption, I'd say. Um, and um, uh, so I, I don't think it actually really changes things. I think the one thing to to note when we're looking at kind of Shell selling off its, its uh, Russian assets is that if it doesn't um, shut down, these, these activities, or it doesn't shut down these fields that is that it's selling to other companies, um, it is not um, uh, weakening Putin's power because um, if other companies continue to operate these fields or continue to operate um, these um, uh, pump stations, then the revenues from uh, uh, those activities will still um, uh, support uh, Putin's war. Um, so I'd say it's, there's not like a, a, a better way of selling off these assets or, uh, it, it's, it's not necessarily better if, if Shell sells these assets to, to Russian companies, it, it should just really, um, wind down these activities and, um, make sure that there are no other companies that can profit from, from these activities and, and thereby, uh, prop up. Um, uh, Russia's fossil fueled war. Yeah, definitely. And I think, as you mentioned, they're expanding in other areas. Like, I think we heard recent, just a few days ago, that the Jackdaw gas field in the UK is uh, going to. They were they're going to re to open it, and Shell is going to drill for gas there. So I'm. Um, you've already mentioned, you know, a couple of the ways that Shell. Uh, has managed to make record profits um, in the first quarter of 2022. I mean, they made like $9.1 billion, but could you just bring those things together? Like, what, like, despite, you know, this war seems to have made them more money in some strain in this weird way. Yeah. So, um, this war has definitely um, made like Shell and, and the other oil and gas companies more money. They are profiting uh, from this war like they have done in so many other wars. One of the things that campaigners have been uh, calling for in response to these exorbitant uh, profits is a windfall tax, um, where um, these companies actually would be uh, text um, so that uh, these exorbitant profits can be used to compensate households that are facing higher energy bills uh, because of this war. And a number of countries have already introduced such a windfall tax, including um, Spain and Bulgaria and Romania and Italy. And just last week, the UK also introduced uh, such a windfall tax. Um, but there are like different ways of, of introducing such a windfall tax and there are definitely ineffective ways um, of doing so and more effective ways of doing so. And generally, it's also good to um, remember that such a windfall tax is not a structural 
solution to um, the problems that we are seeing here, um, because it can also introduce this incentive to continue to invest in oil because the revenues can then be used to compensate households. So um, I'd say that we do need uh, windfall taxes because we know that if we don't tax these massive pro uh, profits, that um, climate criminals will uh, just uh, and become enriched uh, thanks to the high fossil fuel prices and they will continue to invest in more fossil fuels. So we do need these windfall taxes so that we can take those profits and ideally invest them in the energy efficiency and clean energy solutions that can that actually provides more of a structural solution to the crisis that we're facing. Um, but in addition to that, we also need governments to really step in and ensure more structural phase out of this industry. And um, so I'd say that one of the things that this war has shown yet again is that fossil fuels and conflict are um, really interlinked. And that it's not just um, because of the climate crisis that we need to phase out this industry, but it's also critical that we phase out this industry if we want to build a more secure and safe future um, through renewables um, and preferably community, community led or community like approved. Um, and I think that if we succeed in really bringing home that, that message, and if we succeed in getting leaders to understand that fossil fuels are the problem and that fossil fuels are also a source of conflict um, next to um, causing this climate crisis that we're in, then this could be a, a breaking point And this could be a moment in which we actually accelerate this transition that we need. Um, and and uh, yeah, move away from from fossil fuels as we need. Yeah, thanks, Charlie. I think you bring up an important point about you know these resources are like oil and gas are you know by ch chance perhaps or you know they're they're bounded in certain countries and those countries then gain power because of because of these resources and renewable energy gives us the opportunity to to organize energy in a more decentralized way right which i think is something that we don't think about i think in the sort of public sphere enough that uh, you know, you can hoard power on a global state on the global stage by owning oil and gas, I think, um, which is much more difficult to do with windmills um, or solar energy. And it sort of brings things back to a more local level. Um, so it's, it's definitely an important thing to consider. I, I just want to go back to this windfall tax because you mentioned um, that it can windfall taxes can spur more production of fossil fuels uh and i'm wondering if you could spell out this mechanism for us a little bit more um and i think um you know there was this example of the uk as well and how they had a, had tied windfall taxes to incentives for companies to uh drill more so could you just tell us a little bit more about that 
Yeah, so um, windfall taxes can definitely be designed in an effective way or in a less effective way. And I think the UK's windfall tax is uh, definitely an example of the latter. Um, because with the UK's windfall tax, um, companies that are investing in new oil and gas uh, production um, are actually exempted from this tax. Um, or they pay a reduced tax rate. Um, so this incentivizes them to invest in more oil and gas domestically. And that is the world upside down because that is, uh, again, increasing our reliance on, on the fuels that got us into this crisis in the first place. Um, so um, a more effective windfall tax is one that actually uses these profits to invest in the energy efficiency and, and clean, clean energy solutions that can reduce our reliance on fossil fuels. So um, I think that there is definitely a reason to in, impose windfall taxes in this moment. And I, it's very much, I'm very much supportive of using them so that we can take these profits out of the hands of the industry. Um, but we need to make sure that governments design them in such a way that they are actually used to benefit people rather than profits um, and rather than investments in more fossil fuels. Yeah, thanks, Laurie. Um, I want to switch gear a little bit. And yeah, our podcast is really centered around the question how to build a future beyond Shell, how to phase out Shell. And I'm really curious to hear from you how in this political economic context, what maybe new kind of pressure points or vulnerabilities you see uh, with Shell or the, the oil industry as a whole that movements can potentially exploit really to, to move towards a, a just energy transition? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, but what we're really seeing in this moment is that Ukrainian organizations are calling for a ban on fossil fuel imports from Russia. They are calling for governments not to invest in new fossil fuels elsewhere in the world um, because they see that as, as exacerbating the problem and um, also uh, creating like the foundations for conflict elsewhere. Um, and they have been calling on governments to, in response to this crisis, accelerate the transition. So there is a real opportunity for the broader uh, climate and social justice movement to really amplify those calls from Ukrainian organizations. And um, today it's actually a hundred days since the full uh, scale invasion um, of uh, um, Russia and the Ukraine. And on this occasion, uh, the Ukrainian organizations that we are also working with are um, again kind of uh, uh, putting out these calls for a phase out of fossil fuels uh, also in response to the atrocities in, in Ukraine. So there's really an opportunity for us to kind of amplify those voices and, and bring home that message to leaders in our own countries uh, around the world. Um, I'd say that there is a real risk of um, a new wave of fossil fueled colonialism in response to um, the um, yeah concerns around energy security 
an increasing number of governments are looking to invest in oil and gas, particularly in the global south, to then import that oil and gas to replace Russian supply. And um, what we're also hearing from our partners in uh, on the African continent, for example, is that they don't want to see that happen. They don't want this new wave of um, fossil fueled colonialism where Europe extracts gas or oil in Africa only to um, export it to the European continent. Um, and so in this moment, there's also really a need for countries to instead invest in, in clean energy uh, everywhere around the world. And maybe one um, example of, of some progress that we've made on this topic in the last few days is um, the G7 communique that came out uh, last week. Um, so in that um, uh, statement, the G7 countries committed to end international public finance for fossil fuels by the end of this year and instead prioritize their investments for uh, clean energy. Um, and yeah, there's this is something that we need countries to follow through on this commitment. They um, really, uh, uh, yeah need to kind of implement those commitments with integrity. And then we need to see many more countries making uh, the same commitments so that we can shift these financial flows out of kind of fossil fuel lock-in and into the solutions that we now need to see. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, I definitely appreciate uh, appreciate you saying this. And I was also, um, yeah, what you pointed out earlier, that, for instance, um, the fact that Shell actually is just selling off assets rather than winding down its industry. I think that's such an, a crucial point to realize at this point. And uh, yeah, I think also an important I think pressure point to focus on that. Yeah, what we what we demand, what we want is an actual wind down at this point from the industry. And what I'm worried about, or what I can see just in general, yeah, communication. It's sort of yeah, yes, we want to boycott Russian oil and gas, but it hasn't gone up to the extent now we want to really like a complete phase out, like no oil and gas anywhere basically. So the risk that you pointed off, like yeah, new gas drillings, uh, particularly in the global south, are very real. So yeah, if you have any, uh, yeah, I'm curious if you have any more ideas on how we can really tackle these issues, these bottlenecks at this point. Yeah, so I think this is a really critical point uh, that this, this, the response to this war cannot just be stopping imports from uh, fossil fuel imports from Russia. Yeah, we need to do that, but we also need to stop investing in fossil fuels elsewhere in the world. And this is what Ukrainian organizations are calling for. This is what um, organizations that we're working with on the African continent are calling for. Uh, they want uh, this war to um, uh, lead to an end um, of the fossil fuel era, not just in Russia, but everywhere in the world. And one of the things that we can use in, in making this point on the need to not just phase out um, uh, 
uh, imports from from Russia, but also stop like stop this from leading to new investments elsewhere in the world is um, a few pieces of research that have been produced that actually show that we can replace Russian um, fossil fuel supply through investments in energy efficiency and energy savings and in clean energy and through using existing infrastructure, so existing LNG infrastructure that is currently being underused. So there are a few pieces from uh, pieces of research from Ember and AIFA that show that we can replace Russian fossil fuels through clean energy, through energy efficiency, without investing in new fossil fuel supplies. So we have the evidence um, and we also are building kind of the people power to bring home that message. And uh, yeah, that is definitely something that uh, I'd invite people to amplify uh, because that is the real risk that we're seeing now is leading to new investments to replace Russian gas um, and oil. And we need, really need to stop that from happening. Larry, I'm wondering, you know, you mentioned these reports from Ember and AIFA about uh, replacing uh, uh, imp Russian imports of oil and gas with renewable energy and, and that it's possible, you know, and I'm wondering whether they're referring largely to Europe or they're also uh, referring to other countries because, for example, Nigeria uh, has been having a really hard time and uh, various other countries also who are quite, who may be dependent on oil revenue um, or maybe importing oil and gas um, and uh, are are struggling, their economies are struggling because the prices of oil and gas are so high right now. Um, and so I'm, and so the local, local uh, population can't necessarily afford to, to buy things or to use uh, uh, fossil fuels or uh, petrol, for example. So I'm wondering, um, yeah, the, what what can we offer in the in in this predicament for these countries? You know, it, does it does is it true that that transition will also uh, uh, be possible and help these country uh, countries like Nigeria, for example? Yeah, I think that um, what you just ex explained kind of shows that fossil fuel reliance is not in the interest of these. What we are now seeing is that countries that are um, particularly dependent on fossil fuel imports are facing these really high energy prices and um, are therefore um, struggling. And um, and that's also the the people living in these countries are um, are uh, struggling to to pay their bills because of this. Um, so I think that's kind of your introduction to this question already shows that there is an interest for these countries to move away from fossil fuels. Um, historically, it's of course like the global north that is responsible for uh, greenhouse gas emissions. And that is responsible for this crisis that is also affecting countries in the global south um, the most. And um, acknowledging this, um, countries in the global north have said that they would uh, provide 100 billion a year in climate finance to the global south to kind of help them invest in clean energy um, and in energy efficiency solutions 
And uh, rich countries, despite kind of their role in, in causing this crisis, have not delivered on this promise. And they're only planning to now um, deliver on this 100 billion a year target uh, three years late, so from um, next year. And we also know that that 100 billion a year is far from sufficient to um, make the investments that we need and to also adapt to the impacts of the uh, climate uh, crisis that countries are already ha already having to deal with. Um, so, and at the moment, we are also seeing public finance still largely flowing to fossil fuels rather than to a renewable energy. So it's the same countries that are also investing more in fossil fuels in the global south than they are investing in renewable energy. Um, so we really need to see this change. And um, energy access issues are very serious in, in Africa and also in other parts of the world. And uh, so countries do need the clean energy investment, um, but our own uh, energy finance data shows that rather than increasing over the last uh, few years, even since 2014, uh, investments in clean energy have stagnated. Um, so we really need to see those numbers go up. And I think that one kind of positive thing that came out of the um, latest report of the UN climate um, science body, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, is that we can rapidly um, uh, phase out our reliance on fossil fuels over the next decade, and that renewable energy um, solutions are available and are also more affordable than fossil fuels um, and are better um, a place to also support development and to better place to be developed in a way that actually supports local needs and that supports communities or is like developed in a way that is led by communities. Um, uh, but uh, currently the world is really under investing in these solutions. So we need to see those investments increase and the money is there. Uh, it needs to be shifted, so there is a huge opportunity there that cannot be missed because, yeah, our lives and kind of the um, ability to continue to live on, on this planet really depends on it. Thanks, Laurie. I think it's, yeah, really important to emphasize that this is like a collective transition and it can't be bit part in every country for themselves because it sort of exacerbates uh global inequality, you know, the rich countries will, can transition themselves and then, and then not, um, sort of invest in their, uh, historical, uh, uh the historical harms that they've caused or like invest in remediating them. So, uh, Lauri, what, um, what kinds of things is uh, Oil Change International calling for at this point around the war in Ukraine? Like, what are what are your campaigns on this issue right now? Yeah, so we have been amplifying calls from Ukrainian organizations that are calling for a ban on imports from Russia and that they're calling for an end to investments in fossil fuels elsewhere as well. We have been writing reports that are um, uh, assessing the extent of the windfall profits that the industry is making uh, because of the war. Um, we have also been um, mapping how much money the fossil fuel industry has been paying 
to uh, the Russian government since the um, invasion of, of the Crimea. And uh, we have also uh, continued to kind of call on, on the countries to really prioritize their investments for um, the clean energy solutions that can build a more secure and, and safer future rather than investing in new fossil fuels. Um, and that kind of links to that G7 uh, commitments that I mentioned earlier to end uh, public finance for fossil fuels uh, by the end of this year. Um, and yeah, I think one of the things that um, we um, see is really important um, at OCI is that governments really step in to manage the phase out of this industry because we cannot rely on this industry to transform itself. Um, we, I think that that's something that history kind of shows is that this industry is not willing to change and that it wants to continue to profit from fossil fuels. Um, so we really need governments to step in. And um, so one of the things that we're advocating for is for governments to impose a ban on new oil and gas licenses. So a ban on new oil and gas production. And at the climate conference in Glasgow last year, we actually saw a group of governments come together and announce that they would end um, uh, licenses for new fossil fuel production. So we've made a bit of progress there. And this um, group of countries um, that launched this uh, um, uh, kind of collective effort to end licenses for fossil fuel production is called the Beyond Oil and Gas Alliance. So um, we're hoping that that coalition will expand. And then next to that, we are also focusing on growing this, this list of countries that um, commit to use their public finance, their public money to accelerate this transition rather than to prop up fossil fuels. And I think if there's one thing that we can learn from both the pandemic, but also this war in, um, the Ukraine is that um, there's no lack of money in this world. And when governments want to, they can free up huge sums of public money um, um, to respond to a crisis. And the climate crisis is such a crisis and getting off of fossil fuels is like a critical solution to not just the climate crisis, but also the war and also even the pandemic. Um, so in this moment, we really need to see countries um, show that kind of political will to, um, to make that, that money available that we need to, to really um, build this, this safer uh, world uh, built on, on renewable energy. Absolutely. That sounds like there's a lot going on. In this episode, we got a good overview of how Shell has responded to the war in Ukraine and how its business has been affected. In short, it has done a lot of performative work to improve its image by promising to boycott Russian oil and exit Russia. But in reality, the company is profiting from the war in various ways, from high oil and gas prices to sales of its assets. In the next episode, we look at the connections between the oil and gas industry in relation to Putin's war in Ukraine more generally. 
To our listeners, if you like the show, please follow and like us on your podcast platform. Check out our show notes to learn more about the details of Shell's withdrawal from Russia, how the company is still making a lot of money in spite of the war, and campaigns by Oil Change International and others that are addressing the role of fossil fuels in the war in Ukraine. To find out more about a future beyond Shell, visit futurebeyondshell.org.